It is a distinct pleasure to serve you. I have known your pastor, I think, for 24 years. I think I was 16, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. No, I'm going to tell the truth now, Joe. I was 16 or 17 when I met Joe, and uh, he was a sophomore graphic design major when I was a freshman. And uh, that same kind smile that he has now, he had then. Back then, there was a gravity to him as a sophomore in college, like he had somehow found the grown-up pills and taken three of them before I even knew they existed. And he and I followed very similar paths. Um, We both studied graphic design and then went on to seminary. And in seminary, we lived down the hall from each other. I watched very happily as he started dating Hannah, his wife, whom I've also known for a long time and respected. And let me tell you one other thing about your pastor. During four years in Christian college and a lot more in seminary, I heard a lot of very forgettable student-led devotionals. Some of them I gave myself. But just a few were really rich and helpful, and because of those grown-up pills, I guess, Joe could always be counted on to deliver one of those. And I really learned a lot from Joe over the years. I've called him for counsel a couple times. I asked him questions on the car ride over here from my hotel, and I want to express my gratitude to him by sharing these things with the people to whom God has given Joe as a shepherd. I also have to add, I was extremely moved to sing with you, Please don't forget the value of what you have. Up in the Pacific Northwest, I haven't heard church singing like that in six years. It must exist, but I haven't heard it. It it brought tears to my eyes. Also brought tears to my eyes to see people raise their hands for your church website, because I really care about that. Thank you for letting me serve you in that way. And you won't care about this, but I do. It moves me to see good typography everywhere in a church. (laughs) My wife could tell you how often I bite my lip in righteous anger at Comic Sans above the baptistry. Okay, don't get me started. I'm not here to talk about typography. I'm here to address the topic of identity, a biblical worldview of yourself. And I spent a lot of Sunday school talking not about the Bible, which feels odd for me, but about our culture's view of identity. And in a word, it is confused. You have Elsa singing, let it go, let it go, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. Here I stand. I don't care what they're going to say. That's one meaning of the phrase, here I stand. And you have Martin Luther, we celebrate him on Reformation Day, saying those very same words, here I stand, and yet meaning something entirely different because he's standing on a very different surface. Now, my family likes Frozen for sure, Um, despite the message of let it go. But forgive me here, I have to cite yet another movie as an illustration. Uh, My all-time favorite movie is The Incredibles, and I know I'm supposed to pick something more like intellectually sophisticated, and in case I'm in an academic setting, I have a movie in Italian that I can cite as another favorite, but actually it's The Incredibles. Um, I know I've also already talked too long about kids' movies, but it cannot be helped. My notes are already typed up. So, to me, The Incredibles, which is a family of superheroes, is rich in meaning. And I started watching The Incredibles in 2003, back when I was hopelessly single. And now that I have a wife, 
two boys and one girl, just like Mr. Incredible. The movie means even more to me. I've seriously watched it, I don't know, 10 or 15 times. And as in 10 million modern movies, over the course of the film, Mr. Incredible is first inhibited from expressing his true identity, and then liberated to be who he truly is. Dash, too, his son, is eager to run as fast as he can, as he was clearly designed to do in that world. In the sequel, he says, running defines who I am. Violet, his sister, is far less self-confident in her abilities and therefore less eager to embrace the identity they give her. In her story arc, she finally gains that confidence and therefore that identity. But unlike nine million modern movies, what Mr. Incredible finds when he's liberated is not an individualistic identity. The casting off of all restraint, let it go, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. What he finds is something far better. He finds himself in the spot that I'm in, the leader of a loving family. He tells his family while they're all hanging there, trapped by the bad guy, I almost missed it. He finds freedom actually in meeting his obligations to his wife and children, in letting his family join his work, meeting his obligations to the world. It takes the gifts of the entire family to bring down the bad guys in the end. you got Dash's speed, Violet's force field, Mom's flexibility, Dad's strength, even Jack-Jack's mad fire demon baby skills. <clears throat> I can see you've seen my favorite movie. Now, uh, indulge me, please. I'm sorry. I'll get to what's way more important, the Bible. Trust me, Okay. Unlike Dad, Mom, Elastigirl, willingly gave up her superhero identity for her family, so much so that her kids are surprised when she uses her powers. And my favorite moment in the film, it gets me every time, is actually when Dash and Violet are in the plane with their mom, and it gets shot down by missiles, and the mom it moves me, it really does, envelops the kids. Why does this movie move me so much? And Elastigirl grabs her kids, she turns her body into a parachute, and they all float safely down into the ocean. And Violet and Dash both gaze upwards at her with this look like, who is this person? She had so willingly set aside her powers that her own kids didn't really know. Young people, which means a lot of you in here, you should feel the themes of this film that I've mentioned especially keenly because youth is often the time when appropriate parental restraints are taken off appropriately. When your powers, whatever they are, really start to manifest themselves. When you look at yourself and you finally start getting some answers to the question, who is this person? Adults always ask you when you're a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And right now, some of you young people are actually getting some solid ideas about the answer to that question, what you might want to be. Again, I'm not going to preach to you from The Incredibles, though it's a wonderful movie. It has no authority to answer questions of identity. Who is this person? Who am I? It's just Director Brad Bird's opinions. I happen to think he has some good opinions, but my opinion of his opinions is just another opinion, another very human, finite, fallible opinion. I'm going to give you answers to basic questions about identity from the only person who has the authority to answer them, the authority to tell you who you are. That's God himself. I'm going to preach to you, of course, from God's word, from the Bible. 
and I've got a thesis. A biblical worldview of identity means conforming yourself to your true nature, the one given to you by your creator, rather than trying to conform nature to yourself. As one writer said, myself is given to me far more than it is formed by me. Man, scripture says, cannot add an inch to his height. We cannot stand any higher than God has made us stand. And we will only have a true picture of our identity if when we say, here I stand, we're standing on God's word. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It's not hard to find. It's right at the beginning. For a Christian, the answer to the question, who is this person, absolutely must have a foundation in Scripture. You know, it's the person who made you who best knows who you are and what you are for. I'm going to keep this message super simple. Because Genesis does. I've got three points about your identity, all drawn from one key paragraph in the first chapter of the Bible. The first is that you are like God, and you're supposed to be like God. I'll get to the other two points as we go on. If you know Genesis 1, if you've made it that far in your Bible reading, Try again if you failed, you know, the next year is coming, January 1st, try Genesis 1. You know that God creates the world in Genesis 1. Day 1, light. Day 2, atmosphere and firmament. Day 3, dry ground and plants. Day 4, sun, moon, and stars. Day 5, birds and sea creatures. Day 6, land animals and now humans. And now let's just read the foundational text of the Bible, God's Word, our Creator, about us his making of us, his reasons for making us. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now those three points drawn from this all-important paragraph in Genesis 1, a foundational passage of Scripture. First, you are like God, and you're supposed to be like God. A few weeks ago, I was at an outdoor wedding held at a beautiful camp in the mountains up near the Canadian border in Washington State. Very enjoyable. The parents of the bride uh, paid for the whole camp to be rented out, and so my family was staying in a room in a bunkhouse, which meant, however, that we were sharing bathrooms with others, which meant that you felt like you kind of needed to get in and out really fast, which meant that... Uh, One morning when I actually shot a YouTube video, um, I didn't look in the mirror long enough and I didn't button the buttons on my collar, which I didn't realize, of course, until I watched the video. And I I felt, my wife disagreed, that I looked like the very thing I was uh, when I met your pastor, 
a dork. <laughs> That's the way I felt. A mirror represents ourselves to ourselves. It shows us who we are. The Bible is a mirror showing us the norms of Scripture, the norms that God gives us. <clears throat> and actually, a mirror is also a good picture of what we ourselves are. We were created to mirror God. In the Ten Commandments, God actually prohibited making images of himself. But he did it. It's you. You bear God's image. Only he can do such a thing. In this passage, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God the Father speaks to the Son and the Spirit, the other members of the Trinity. Did you ever wonder who is he talking to when he says, let us make man in our, plural, image? That's who. Let's make man in our image after our likeness. The truth is, you are like God in many ways, whether you want to be or not. You are a mirror of him. And what is God like? Let's just limit it to what we know from the creation story. If you've only read this far in your Bible reading for the year, what do you know about this God in whose image you're made? You know he's a creator. And lo and behold, you have the capacity to create like he does. You know he speaks, and lo and behold, you can speak and write and communicate, even if your spelling isn't as good as God's. And I'll mention more about this later, but throughout Genesis 1, God evaluates his own creative work. At the end of every day, he beholds his work and declares it good. I'm just going to rattle this off. Verses 3, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, that's five times in Genesis 1, he declares his work on each creation day good. And look down now at verse 31. After God creates man and finishes his creation, the Bible tells us, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You who were made in God's image also, like him, evaluate things. And you love and approve of that which you regard to be good. You are like God. You image him whether you care to or not. No other beings on the planet can do what you do. Animals can't do it. They don't have language. I love language. I'm a big linguistics nerd. I, run a, I read a column called Word Nerd, Language in the Bible. And I've studied this. Parrots can repeat a lot of words, but they can't form sentences. Uh, chimps can sign a lot of words, but they cannot form sentences. They can't tell you how they were feeling yesterday. You can because you are like God. Everybody on the planet is made in God's image, from the holiest saint to the wickedest criminal, criminal ooh, to the toddler with Down syndrome, to the elderly person with dementia. But I didn't just say you are like God. I also said you are supposed to be like God. And we have to expand a little bit beyond Genesis 1 to see this, but this really is a necessary teaching of the Bible. I'm not going to have you turn elsewhere. Just listen in. There is another sense in which the image of God is a norm, a rule that you're supposed to meet. People who study the Bible carefully, as many people here have for many years, have struggled a little bit to explain precisely what is the image of God. I just described it as some of the functions and capacities that you have as a human. But the fact is the passage doesn't really explain 
I think the first impression you get as a new reader is actually that you just look like God, which is kind of strange because the rest of the Bible says that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. Image and likeness, however, are visual words. But the way the rest of the Bible uses this concept, it can't just mean we're physically similar to God. So the Bible also talks about how Christians are conformed to the image of God's Son. The image, then, is something you can reflect more or less of. In other words, there's a moral quality to it. You can be in more or less conformity to the image of God. And if you know even a little bit of the story of Genesis, you probably know about the first time that humans really and truly failed to image God. It's when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that God had forbidden them to eat of on pain of death. The serpent promised them, you will not die, but God was right. And death, through that sin, came into the world and has stayed to this day. To this day, then, you can be a good mirror of God's character or a bad one. You can be a whole mirror or a cracked one. Sin, of course, is what cracks the mirror and distorts the image. But you can never get rid of it. You can't destroy the mirror. You can't make yourself into something other than an imager of God. No matter how many darts you throw at the picture of somebody you hate, it's still their picture on your wall. No matter how much you do to look and act like the serpent, you cannot erase God's image that has been stamped indelibly on you. This is the most fundamental fact about you, the foundation of your identity, the first thing your creator says about you. Let us make man in our own image. You are an image bearer. You are like God, and you're supposed to be like God. You're supposed to reflect what he looks like as a mirror to anyone in the watching world. And just think about this. If your identity is most fundamentally a gift from God and not something you create, then you can do what one pastor I really respect says, and you can loosen the links between your ideas and your identity. People in our highly polarized country act like if someone disagrees with them, they're being attacked personally. People are so invested in their political, tribal identities that they stick to their tribes, especially on the internet, and they start to act as if their politics are more fundamental to who they are than, than what the Bible says is true of them. People get massively angry at others when they feel their political tribe is threatened. They lash out with even physical violence, and I've seen people online be unbelievably nasty over the differences between Macs and PCs. When everybody knows Macs are better. I've seen teenagers despair, despair over not being one of the cool kids. I'm not in the inner ring. I'm not in the tribe. I have no worth. But if your ultimate identity is given to you at your creation, secured by God, you can do what theologians call chill. If you're a Christian who knows Christ and knows he's made in the image of God, you can talk like Paul does. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 4, don't turn there, just listen. I don't care if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. If the most popular story about our world is true, then there is no God who gives us identities tied to him, and we're stuck creating our own identities. Many, perhaps most of us, 
will be failures of one kind or another at various portions of our lives. I have described the portion of my life in which I was decidedly a dork. That was one time in my life when there was some failure. Sometimes we won't represent God well. But if God is our ultimate source of identity, then in the end, only his evaluation of us matters. A lot of people like to make a God in their own image, but a biblical worldview of yourself means you recognize that's completely backwards. Before I get to the second point about human identity in Genesis 1, I just need to say a brief word about that big word, worldview. I've done a lot of writing on this in Bible textbooks, uh, especially the ones Pastor Joe mentioned. And worldview, like identity, is not a Bible word. It's just a useful one. It helps describe something that I believe is true about the world, a truth that the Bible in its deepest structure reflects. Here's what I mean. The major ingredient of every worldview, the Christian one, the Western secular one, the Buddhist one, the Islamic one, all the ones on offer, the major ingredient is a big story, sometimes called, here's the technical term, a meta-narrative. And no, this is not named after the new name of Facebook's parent company. A meta-narrative is the big story that every worldview tells about the world. For example, here's a big story you may have heard, a meta-narrative. Once upon a time, there was a big bang. Don't ask why. And like kajillions of years passed, and slowly, don't ask why, inanimate matter became life and began evolving. And here we are. Uh, but bad news, in the end, we don't all go off riding into the sunset because even the sun itself will burn up. Sorry, the end. That is the prevailing secular meta-narrative. Am I wrong? They don't tell it quite like that, but... I won't take time to get into all the major meta-narratives available, but that's the major one you're up against. I will say there's a limited number. Let me focus just on one, the biblical one. The story our Creator tells us about us and our world. And I've just told you some of the key details, really the first two of three parts of that Bible story. I've just mentioned them. I and many other students of the Bible like to summarize the Bible in three narrative movements. Creation, fall, redemption. God created this world with man and woman in His image. They fell into sin, dragging all of creation with them under a curse and into death. Christ, through his perfect life and innocent, self-sacrificial, redemptive death, pays for human sin and defeats death. But it's maybe only the third quarter. We don't know. Jesus didn't tell us when when the story ends. And though there's no way that death can win before Christ comes back to fully restore God's creation, It can gain a lot of yardage and do a lot of damage before that time. That's the Bible story. Creation, fall, redemption. And it's not just a story like a bedtime story, like something cutesy you tell your kids at night. It's the story. It's the history and the future of our world, as told by the only being who could know, God himself. That's basically what I mean when I call my two talks this morning, identity, a biblical worldview of yourself. I'm asking the Bible to tell me, who is this person I call me? Who is this person you call you? And God's word, the Bible answers mainly by telling the story of how and why God made us. Now let's get to some more of the why. 
You, who are you? You are blessed to fill and rule God's world. Look now at Genesis 1, 28. Count the, English students, imperative verbs with me, the commands. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, there's one, and multiply, there's another. I tend to take those together because they kind of go together. And fill the earth, there's another one, and subdue it, there's another one, and have dominion. And then God expresses all the things over which people are supposed to have dominion. And if you look at verse 28, that's just animals and birds. But if you look back up in verse 26, God actually says, let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. That is a wide-ranging dominion. You, who are you? You are blessed to fill and, God, and rule God's world. So I would kind of make this into four commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over the earth. But wait a minute, really observe carefully with me. Are these really commands? Look again at the way the verse is phrased. In verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, etc. What does that mean? And God blessed them and said to them. Most of you, I think, are carrying the English Standard Version. This makes it into two separate sentences, I think. And God blessed them, period, right? I don't have it in front of me now. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply. But that's not necessary. I'm not saying they did wrong. I'm saying you could read it right through. And why is that significant? Well, it's kind of like this. When my uh, wife, you know, says goodbye to me, and I'm running out to the car to go to work in the morning, about a half hour drive, she says, have a good day, hon. Is that grammatically an imperative? Yes, she is commanding me, have a good day, hun. Well, yeah, grammatically, but that's not what we call semantically what's really going on. The meaning of that is a wish, kind of a prayer, a blessing. She says, have a good day, hun. And I'm not like, okay, another thing I got to do today. Have a good day. (laughs) I'll add that to my to-do list. No, again, it's a wish. It's a blessing. But if I said, no, I refuse to have a good day, well, then she'd be like, well, you know, you are going against my desires. That's what's happening here. God blesses them with these blessings, kind of like, have a good day. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. To hear in my voice what I think God is doing here. So there is a sense in which this is a norm. We're supposed to do all these things. But there's also a sense in which it's a blessing that God gives to people who have no idea that God ever said any of this stuff. How many people that constructed your beautiful, beautiful church building? How many people, here I go again with my nerdities, who designed those beautiful letters? How many of them had any idea I mean the people who literally drew out the B. It's harder to do than you think. How many people did it because they were self-consciously obeying God? 
I'm going to make something beautiful because God said, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Maybe some, those who worked on this building because they're church members, they did that, but probably there were some people who had no thought of God whatsoever when they were putting together your exit sign and putting it on there or designing that B. Those people still are doing these things. They're being fruitful and multiplying. They're filling the earth. They're subduing it. They're having dominion over it. Why? Because God's basic marching orders for the planet are also a blessing to the planet. It's something that everybody does, kind of like being an imager of God, whether they like to or not. But like being an imager of God, you can run against the grain of God's creation. You can refuse to fill the earth. Have you ever heard of dinks? D-I-N-K, double income, no kids. Married couples who self-consciously say, eh, we don't really want kids. There are reasons why God doesn't give fertility to couples. That's in his hand. He opens the womb. But for somebody to say, I don't want kids, they're too much trouble, is to say to my wife, you don't tell me to have a good day. Whoa, these are a blessing. Yeah, there's a norm here too. You should do these things. That's the import of this passage. God's basic marching orders for the planet include telling us all to have children. He doesn't specify how many. I have three, and their mother, my lovely wife Laura, is feeding them jack-in-the-box for me in my absence. I will say that the rest of the Bible clarifies that God does call some Christians to singleness, and singles are not second-class citizens. Paul says in the New Testament that singles, like he was, can dedicate themselves in a special way to serving the Lord. But that is an exception to the general rule. In our day, people often act as if there is no norm so that those who don't meet that norm don't feel excluded. And I get the impulse there, and I really do sympathize with it. But we can't back off this norm that the Bible boldly states on page one. People are, most people are supposed to get married like Adam and Eve. They're supposed to be fruitful and multiply so that humanity can spread over the entire surface of the planet, minus Antarctica and probably Canada, because both of those places are too cold for humans. I live near the Canadian border, and our best scientists in Washington State are still unsure how anyone survives up there. Just kidding. You can live in Canada if you want, if you want to freeze. I like to kid Canadians because they're so polite, and they just laugh a big Canadian laugh. They don't get back at you, but... Actually, I'm perfectly serious in saying that the things they do to survive up there, way up there in the frozen north, are amazing. These people have subdued the earth, made it fit for human habitation, pressed God's world towards its ideal, maximizing its usefulness for mankind. All of that language I take from the biblical worldview text that I've worked on and the team that uh, worked on them with me. When the Bible says, take dominion, I'm blessing you to do this, God says, that does not mean that humans are given the license to destroy God's world. Far from it. Preserving the beauty of national parks is part of the task of subduing and having dominion. I'm confident. As I drove down the, the driveway here with Pastor Joe this morning, I just noticed somebody planted beautiful trees in the median in between the two lanes. I thought, how wonderful. That's subduing and having dominion. It's not destructive. It's for human flourishing. What these next commands, these commands to subdue and have dominion mean, is all the good jobs that exist, including the ones that you have. It is important that we have preachers and missionaries. 
Somebody has to write articles for my magazine, Bible study magazine. Somebody has to pastor churches. These are extremely important. But you are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom if you work in construction or serve your neighbors as a nurse or as a stay-at-home mom or as an English teacher or as an artist or musician or a thousand other things the world and your neighbors need. My kids, when they were little, used to have this book. Did you have this book from Richard Scarry, What Do People Do All Day? Every page was chock-full of detail showing off different jobs that people can have. Um, But actually, of course, all the people are animals. And it was so perfect. I loved it, except I now admit to you that I secretly skipped lots of the pages when it was late and the kids needed to go to bed and I didn't want to read every single word on every single page the way my kids always demanded. There were just too many good jobs in the world. The book lasted and lasted and it didn't exhaust all of them. I feel I must say again, to have dominion doesn't mean to dominate, to crush, to pulverize. It means to use whatever authority and power and ability you have as an image bearer to make the world a more ideal place. And when you teach English or wipe a toddler's nose or write an actuarial report for an insurance agency, more power to you, you can say, I was blessed by God at creation to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. If you're going to serve your neighbor by subduing some part of the earth and having dominion over it, you're going to have to learn the rules that God put into his created world. Insurance agents have to know math and they can't violate the math rules that God made. Even moms have to learn to watch what kinds of activities make toddlers get colds. You have to conform yourself to the way God made the world rather than trying to make your own rules in your own world. This topic is very deep, very rich. I can only give you a hint here, but I really believe that these important words in this really packed paragraph in Genesis are like seeds that grow into all kinds of important trees in the rest of the Bible and in your life and in your identity. Let's move on then to the most controversial element of what God says about your identity in this passage. You are male or female, and that is very good. Do you have younger siblings? You know how they like to blurt out stuff, right? You got little kids. Sometimes they actually tell us blunt truths we need to hear like the emperor's new clothes, like this super funny online video I saw where a middle-aged woman asked her husband while he's sitting eating something, would you love me if I was fat? He says right away, of course. But then a little voice can be heard saying from the background, but mom, you already are fat. (laughs) You see the man nearly spit out his food and the video is over. You know, thank you children for telling us truths we don't really want to know. Or the time years ago when one of my own kids was in the shopping cart at the grocery store in Greenville, South Carolina, and we came up in line behind a young woman who was very clearly dressed like a boy. Short, boyish hair, backwards cap, boyish shorts, boyish t-shirt. And my three-year-old blurted out so loudly that this young woman couldn't miss it, Dad, that boy looks like a girl! I'm embarrassed, don't know what to say, you know, it's awkward. She smiles and and laughs it off. But I thought, out of the mouths of babes. Sometimes children actually do cut through adult silliness. Kids don't know everything, (laughs) but they know beyond a shadow of a doubt what lots of adults have worked hard to persuade themselves isn't true. Male and female, 
he created them. There's boys and there's girls. Those are the only available options. When, this is a true story, broke my heart, a progressive elementary school in New York City proclaimed that all bathrooms could be used by any sex. Little girls avoided going potty all day long so they wouldn't have to encounter boys in their bathroom. And the kids ultimately on their own with no adult involvement went back to having boys' rooms and girls' rooms no matter what the adults said. We live in a world in which the precious gifts of masculinity and femininity are not treated like gifts at all. I recently read a lengthy book, the one I mentioned, Carl Truman's book, and he's been here, that started with a simple question. How did we get to the place in North America and Europe in which it isn't self-evidently absurd to everyone for someone to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body? The author showed the step-by-step process by which this idea, once considered crazy, has gone mainstream. And I want to show absolute compassion to people who find themselves confused in this area. But it isn't compassion to go along with them. It's love and compassion to tell them the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter says, Love rejoices with the truth. That's what we need to do. Here I stand on God's word. At each step in this progression that our society has gone through, all the people had to do was read page one of their Bibles and page one of their bodies. Do you get my meaning? And they would see the truth. You are male or female. And what did God call that created maleness and femaleness? Very good! Just look at what God says about his creation. Look at verse 31 again, just in case you didn't believe me that he said this. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But here's the thing. Without reading page one of your Bibles, you're going to be confused about what page one of your body even means. If there's no God giving us our sexual identities, male and female, as respective gifts, then it doesn't matter what my private parts look like. I can do with my body whatever makes me happy at the moment. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. You do you, let me be me. My body doesn't have norms or rules if I'm not created, if my identity is not a gift. It's my choice. If I'm an evolutionary accident, I can maybe just start the path of evolution off in my own chosen direction. Who's going to stop me? If there's no God giving us blessing. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the blessed blessing of being fruitful and multiply, then the sexual part of life could be for pleasure only if I want it to be. And that is the world we have right now, isn't it, my brothers and sisters? And those who don't follow Jesus, do you recognize this? We have a world, a brave new world, in that profound book title, in which the sexual part of life is for pleasure only. And hasn't that idea, just in your own life, not even reading the news, just in your own life, things you've witnessed in people's lives, maybe in your own, hasn't that idea caused incredible hurt and heartache? Because 
Humans were designed for sexual pleasure. God invented sex. It's a good thing, created good by God. It's right there in the passage. Can't have being fruitful and multiplying without it. But sex was not created to work outside a committed marriage. I want to demonstrate this to you quickly. Let's turn to Matthew 19. This is the only cross-reference I'm going to take you to. I really try to be careful not to have us do too much flipping so we don't get lost. This really is essential. We'll go back to Genesis 1 after we look at Matthew 19. I need you to see that the way I am using Genesis 1 is not a creative reinterpretation, but is not just authorized, but used by Jesus himself. Look in Matthew 19. And you know what? I don't have the verse number. I think it's three. This is the bad thing about putting your uh, verses in your notes. Matthew 19. Jesus is approached by the Pharisees. I'm almost there. Sorry. Let's look at verse three. Yeah. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And pause just a second there. What could they be talking about? Well, they don't specify But um, divorce often is another name for adultery, being unfaithful to the spouse, the wife of your youth. They are talking in some measure about sexual sin then. That is included in the for any cause. And how did Jesus answer this question that included the topic of sexual sin? He answered, verse 4, Have you not read... In other words, you're morally obligated to look at the Bible, that's what he's talking about, and draw conclusions from it about your own life. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? Hear me, Jesus did not treat Adam and Eve like literary archetypes or legends, myths, And he didn't just tell their story because it's something that happened, although it did happen. It's when he was asked about sexual sin that he told the story of Adam and Eve. And he appealed to that story as normative, as giving a rule. God made them male and female, therefore, that's the word Jesus uses in verse 5, therefore, and he's citing Genesis, This is what should happen. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God glues the married couple together, and no one's supposed to unglue them. Genesis tells a story that, according to Jesus, really matters. It provides the original blueprint for the way today's relationships between men and women are supposed to go. Please do turn back to Genesis 1, and we'll spend the rest of our time there. There is so much to say about this topic from Scripture, so much rich teaching of the Bible. And I urge you all now, especially in this day and age, to know what your Bible says about men and women and glory in it. I have based my life on it, and I am so grateful for these truths of the Bible. I began self-consciously doing what Jesus said about masculinity and femininity and sexuality when I was about 12. I read what Jesus said, I knew what the world was saying, and I knew there was a fork in the road in front of me. 
I didn't know what was at the end of either fork. All I could do is listen to what God said was at the end. I have no regrets in standing on the word here. I'm going to limit my comments here, though, to teasing out a few more threads from Genesis 1. If, indeed, God declared his creation very good, you saw it in verse 31 and elsewhere, then being male is very good, and being female is very good. Obviously, this passage also teaches ultimate equality between man and woman. They were both made in God's image. They were both made to fill and rule, to subdue and have dominion. Equality is an utterly essential teaching of the Bible, equality between the sexes on that level. The Bible will say later that man is not independent of woman nor woman of man. The sexes need each other. But the Bible also says that each sex has unique glories. Now, it feels almost offensive to say it today, and and I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm kind of sorry. It's kind of like the time just recently a certain child of mine, also young, asked out loud in front of guests why all of the people who were playing uh, basketball had a particular skin color. And you're kind of like, oh, um, uh, you just, you don't know what to say. That is the way our culture is right now about masculinity and femininity. You're not supposed to mention it. But the Bible says it. Listen to this. The glory of young men is their strength, the Bible says. Two evolutionary biologists not Christians, wrote a paper in which they report that the average man has greater upper body strength than 99.9% of women. They also said, pick 2,000 people over six feet tall at random from the population, and only two of them will be women. I play every week a sport that men and women can play together, ultimate frisbee. I enjoy playing with women, absolutely no question. I play with some awesome female players, but there's an undeniable difference in the physical strength of men and women. And this whole room went utterly silent when I said that. Who gave men the distinctive glory of strength? Our creator. We dare not deny this. Now, are there strong women who could beat me up right now? Yes. (laughs) Please do not, if any of you are here. But when our culture tells itself stories over and over in the movies in which slender, attractive young women who are statistically unlikely, you know, in every measure of attractiveness, perfect Hollywood beauties, when they beat up multiple burly men, and there are countless movies in which this happens, it's like we're being told that the only way a woman can have glory is by being physically strong like a man. How is the slip of a teenage girl that was in my Sunday school class back at my church, how is she supposed to feel when she sees this slender woman beating up multiple men? Our culture's answer is empowered. But is that how they actually feel? She told me, no, she doesn't feel that way. She knows she couldn't do what those actresses are only pretending to do. Those men aren't actually getting beat up. These movies together tell a lie about the way God made the world. Exceptions don't prove the rule. Men and women are equal in God's sight. Don't ever deny it. Men should not dominate women because of their greater physical strength. 
The Bible teaches that a husband is supposed to love his wife and give himself up for her, the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. But the Bible teaches that men have different strengths. Men and women have different strengths, different glories. What if we told ourselves heroic stories of women who show distinctive feminine glories? Think of Florence Nightingale, a true hero, a battlefield nurse who was physically brave, but whose glory was found in her nurture and care. Every time you say anything about men and women today, you have to qualify it and hedge it a thousand times. I know this because when I wrote a biblical worldview textbook for 12th graders that had a panel of consultants that were all conservative, Bible-believing Christians, my chapters on gender and sexuality got noticeably way more attention from the consultants looking at every single sentence than anything else that I'd written. They all knew intuitively our culture is really confused about this, and we have to be so careful. So I'll hedge a little bit. I'm not saying men can't be nurses, but the one male nurse I personally know the best, a friend of mine from Frisbee, is a burly weightlifter who told me that the major thing the hospital needed him for was lifting heavy patients. Young ladies, let me speak to you. I tell my wife all the time that what attracted me to her, above all, was that she was a lady. I love having a truly feminine wife, and she's not some parody of femininity, some boy toy or some pretty pink princess frilly all the time. She's a hard worker. She's a successful flower farmer. She can never keep her nails quite the way, you know, other ladies do because they're always in the dirt, and I love it. But in all of this, somehow she's a lady. After all these years, I delight in the fact that I can't even put my finger on exactly what it is that makes her so perfectly feminine. She has a mystique. Is it her walk, her motions, her voice, her gentleness, her love for flowers? her tenacity as a mom, her support and help to me. I I just know that I'm glad she didn't listen to voices in our culture that were telling her that men and women are interchangeable. Girls, work to discover with your Bible. Don't go beyond the Bible. And with the help of your mom or some other Christian lady who's mature, discover what a lady is and conform yourself to it. Your femininity is a gift, not a curse. Young men, let me speak to you. Work to discover with your Bible and with the help of your father or a pastor if your father is not a Bible believer. Discover what a man is. Conform yourself to it. It's a gift, not a curse. It's a glory. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what I've just been saying may sound either totally foreign to you or strangely attractive, like finding your true home. If what Genesis 1 says about you and me as created beings, as male and female, just resonates with you, wonderful, dig in. You'll find that following Jesus is the only thing that makes sense of our world, far beyond just the matters of identity, because only our Creator really knows the rules He used to structure creation, the way to solve the problem of human sin. But if you don't follow Jesus, and all of this is foreign, and maybe not just foreign, but possibly offensive, you thought about getting up and getting out at some point, especially when I talked about the male-female stuff, then I'd only encourage you to recognize what's going on here. You are telling yourself a different story about your origins, nature, and purpose than the Bible tells. I don't know you. I don't know very many people in this church at all. I'd love to know you. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. But I can guess 
almost certainly, if you're objecting to what you're hearing, the story you're telling yourself about the world is the one you've picked up from the prevailing winds in American culture. If you lived elsewhere in the world, you'd be telling yourself a yet other story. You have a worldview, even if you don't think you do. For the same reason that fish don't know they're in water, you may not even realize it. Is your story, the one you're telling about who you are, where you come from, what the problems are in this world, is it really better than the one your creator tells? Is that even possible? And not to put too fine a point on it, but I ask out of love for you, how's the story you're telling about the world working out for you? I sort of suspect that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't be here if the story the world out there tells about reality was solely satisfying to you. I have no idea how much detritus, how much damage from the sexual revolution that our culture has experienced is represented in this room, especially in fatherless children. Perhaps, you know, our Creator knows best how to give us good lives. Don't let our culture erase what you know at some level in your God-given conscience is true, that you are male or female, and that is very good. Don't deny the truth you knew as a very little child. God created male and female equally as image bearers, but with differing gifts and strengths and glories. In The Incredibles. The key narrative transition moment in Violet's story arc comes as she stands outside the cave on this island. You remember this part? where the bad guy lives, Syndrome. She has just tearfully confessed to her mother that she doesn't think she can do this superhero stuff. Her force field efforts on the plane, when the missiles are coming at them, failed, nearly got them all killed. And her mom says, don't worry, it's in your blood. And then Elastigirl takes off to find Mr. Incredible, who's either in trouble or he's going to be. And Violet stands there outside the cave thinking, She's got to choose whether she will conform to her nature and embrace the responsibilities that come with it, including at that moment protecting her annoying little brother, or whether she'll reject it. The normally retiring and wilting Violet suddenly stands tall and puts on her superhero mask. She chooses to conform her will to her nature. And I don't want to trivialize it, I find the movie very meaningful, but the Bible is calling you to do the same. You are created. Your identity is a gift from God, not a creation of your own. It's a gift he means for you to give back to him by living a life of obedience. It's a gift he means for you to give to others by living a life of love of your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Step outside the cave, stand up, and be who God says you are. Accept the fact that you were made to be like God and to represent him. You were blessed to fill the planet, to subdue the earth and have dominion over some portion of it. You were made as one of only two options in an irreducible binary, male or female. Whichever kind you are, you're probably going to marry the other kind. That's kind of how the filling the earth and multiplying happens. All this to me is exciting. This passage of the Bible answers deep questions I have about who and what I am. And if this is not exciting to you, but repulsive, I can only call you to repent and admit that the person who best knows who you really are is the one who made you. Let's pray. 
Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom hasn't fully come yet. You haven't yet put all things under Christ's feet. Lord, do so. Lord, we face rebellion in our own hearts. My own heart at times feels tension over heralding your words. I know they'll be offensive to people. Lord, help us all to obey you as the angels obey you in heaven. Your will be done. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Don't let us stumble into all the errors of confusion that our culture's concepts of identity have filled their minds and hearts with. Instead, deliver us from evil. Lord, we confess yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.